athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I think very deeply. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I think very deeply. It's the dopest show on radio. From the press box to press row, I am your host, Donald Ware. Got a whole lot to get to on today's program. We're going to talk NBA. Mike Wallace, senior editor of Bryan City Media, going to join us on the program. The NBA playoffs are hot and heavy. Got the Rockets and the Warriors. A lot going on in that series. A lot of controversy, particularly early on after game one. I think all of that was pretty much settled. But I still want to get Mike Wallace's thoughts on the series. The Warriors are up two games to nothing. I think that, listen, you know, the the Rockets did a good job in terms of bringing to light the non-foul calls to try to get some things to kind of go their way. I'm sort of old school. I mean, when did when did the when did this rule come about when you had to allow for a offense or an offensive player to come down and be able to land like, you know, they are just taking all of the defense out of the game. I think the Rockets did a lot of crying, but I think that it was effective. And it, I mean, well, it got people talking and it got, you know, everybody talking about it. I think at the end of the day, it didn't matter in game two. And the Warriors are the more superior team. So the Rockets were just trying to get any advantage that they possibly could. But, you know, I pretty I think this is a sweep. I, I know it goes to Houston for game three on Saturday. Again, the Warriors lead this thing two to nothing. But I think, you know, I think the Warriors sweep this thing. But, uh, of course, Mike Wallace, senior editor of Grind City Media, going to join us on the program. We also are going to look ahead to the 76ers and the Raptors. And, you know, a pretty good series there, as a matter of fact, as well. Also joining us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row, the Coppin State Eagle baseball team. And I, I don't know if I ever thought that I would use the word Coppin State Eagle baseball team and and um, frankly box to row in the same sentence because the program had been um, really not good at all going back some you know really 10 20 years or so and Sherman Reed is the baseball coach at Coppin State Coppin State has won 24 games on this season the most that the program has won in its history He's done a good job, and and Coppin State is in position to defend its MEAC Northern Division crown as a weekend series against Delaware State, and Sherman Reed, the baseball coach at Coppin State, also going to join us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Also joining us today here on the program, Lindsey Hunter was introduced as the head men's basketball coach at Mississippi Valley State on Tuesday, of course, 
Lindsey Hunter played in the NBA for 17 seasons, won two NBA titles, one with the Lakers and then one with Detroit. Detroit was the team that drafted him back in the early to mid part of the 90s. I think it was a 93 draft. They drafted him in the first round. He had a stint with Detroit, then bounced around a little bit before coming back to Detroit and being a contributor on that Pistons team that won the NBA championship back in 2004. And again, the last time we had Lindsey Hunter on the program, he had been maybe a week or so into his position as the interim head coach of the Phoenix Suns. That was back in 2013. So Lindsey Hunter also going to join us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Got a lot to talk about. John Singleton, director, producer, actor, executive director. John Singleton passed away. He, you know, he had been in a he had a stroke uh, sometime back and had been on life support. And then he ultimately passed away um, earlier this week. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, John Singleton and the impact that John Singleton had on Hollywood in the film industry. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear from Taraji P. Henson on what John Singleton meant to her, especially from the perspective of the film Baby Boy. I think what we talked about a lot or what was talked a lot about this week with respect to John Singleton was Boys in the Hood, and rightfully so. It was, uh, of course, nominated for an Oscar uh, or an Academy Award, and that was a groundbreaking film. I can remember in 1991, I was, at the time the film came out, I was 16 years old, about on the verge of being 17. It was the summer of 1991. I remember vividly when that film came out. I mean, Ice Cube, I didn't know any of the other actors really in the film. Didn't really know who Lawrence Fishburne was, Neil Long. Um, But I'll tell you what, knew exactly who Ice Cube was, probably the best rapper in the game at that time. And he, you know, that was his first film. And so you're going to hear from... Taraji P. Henson, in terms of what John Singleton meant to her, she talked about that with us um, a couple of weeks ago here on From the Press Box to Press Row. We're trying to dig up some Morris Chestnut as well. We had Morris Chestnut on the program back in 2013. He didn't really talk much about Boys in the Hood, but we had him also on in 2016. We're trying to look or trying to find that as we speak as well. So we're going to talk about John Singleton also today. Here on the program, I want to talk about those bunch of jerks as well. The Carolina Hurricanes are doing it really, really big and had a chance to be at the game uh, here in Raleigh on Wednesday when they defeated the Islanders 5-2. to two. Listen, the, the, the Hurricanes are playing so well right now. They have an opportunity to win. You know, it's not like when the Hurricanes won it back in 2006. They were a higher seed. At that time, back in 2006, when they won the Stanley Cup, I, I don't remember in 2002. So seems like to me, if I can remember back, I had just gotten to Raleigh and it seems like at that time, the Hurricanes may have only been around about five years or so. They went to the Stanley Cup in 2002. They ultimately lost in the Stanley Cup finals. But I, I don't remember if that year they were a lower seed or a higher seed. But in 2006, they were a higher seed. So it's not like. It's not like this year is mirroring 2006. However, you're talking about a team that barely made the playoffs that up until this year, the last time they made the playoffs was 2009. So you're talking about a a 10 year drought 
in which that organization did not make the playoffs yet is on the precipice of doing something extraordinary. Um, and, you know, again, you know, I can't stress enough. Rod Brindamore, the head coach, he was part of that 2016 that won the Stanley Cup. There were a lot of questions when he got hired. There were a lot of question marks during the course of the season. A lot of chatter about Rod Brindamore. Well, I tell you what, he has been one of the big reasons, I think, because he can speak to these guys in terms of of what it's like to be in the playoffs, what it's like. And, and of course, they have Justin Williams as well, who was part who's part of the team now that was part of that Stanley Cup team as well, won another Stanley Cup also with another team as well. But going to talk some uh, some Hurricanes and some NHL also today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Join us here on the program. Hit me up via Twitter at BoxToRow, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W. Also on Instagram, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R-O-W. Let's do a bit of a roll call. Thank you to all of those listening to us on our phenomenal, phenomenal affiliates around the country that carry from the press box to press row, for instance, in Alexandria, Louisiana, on KTTP, as they carry the, uh, they carry, of course, the program and just up and down WJSU, uh, FM out of Jackson, Mississippi, who carries the program. So many great affiliates around the country that carry from the press box to press row WXVI 1600 in Montgomery. And by the way, uh, big shots out to Titus Howard, first round draft pick by the Houston uh, Texans in last week's National Football League draft and again becomes the first first round draft pick take uh, HBCU guy that was taken by a team in the first round since Dominique Rogers Cromarty was taken by the Arizona Cardinals back in 2008. Also, congratulations to Joshua Miles of Morgan State taken in the seventh round, uh, as well as uh, DJ Daryl Johnson Jr. of North Carolina A&T, also drafted in the seventh round, as well as for Prairie View A&M. And, you know, one of the young men that that really wasn't um, a guy that was on the roster, but um, or, or wasn't really on the radar, I should say. It's a, a young man who, as a matter of fact, uh, Quentin Bell, his first three years at Prairie View A&M played wide receiver. And then ultimately for his last year, which was last year, switched to defensive end, put up some pretty good numbers, impressed at his pro day, and ultimately got drafted as well in the seventh round. Um, and so, you know, it's been a – and I wrote about the draft, the National Football League and the draft. Um, I did a commentary on it. You remember back in the day, a lot of HBCU guys used to get drafted pretty regularly, and that has really changed the landscape of HBCU football with respect to the National Football League has really, really changed in the last 20 years or so. And I, I did a piece – and I want you to go check it out at BoxToRow.com if you get an opportunity. Of course, thank you to those listening to us on Sirius XM channels 141 and 142. And those listening to us around the world at BoxToRow.com. you got about 45 seconds in this segment. You know, I tell you what, John Singleton, I mean, you talk about someone that had a great impact, particularly for those of color in 
Hollywood. I mean, you talk about Boys in the Hood, follows that up with Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, Rosewood, Shaft, uh, Baby Boy, Too Fast, Too Furious, which he was the director on. Uh, Four Brothers also directed that Hustle and Flow, which was he he was a producer on that. So he's worked with Taraji P. I didn't know that a couple of times. But what an influential person. Of course, we talk mostly about Boys in the Hood, but he did so much more. We'll talk more about John Singleton plus NBA and more as from the press box to press row rolls on. Mommy, where are we going? To the grocery store, honey. Oh, goody, Mommy. Can we buy an original bag of Marjorie's Beef Jerky? Of what? An original bag of Marjorie's Beef Jerky. It's really good, Mommy. Dad let me try some, and I couldn't help myself, and I ate it all, and I was hoping that you could, like, help me replace it before he comes home from work. Why would you eat all of Dad's Beef Jerky? Mommy, I couldn't help myself. Marjorie's Beef Jerky is so good, and Daddy says it's good for you. Well, it sounds like we had better buy two bags to avoid this from happening again. Thanks, Mom. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. You can also purchase Marjorie's Beef Jerky online at Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com. That's Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com or call them toll free 844-340-7613. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. The old renaissance is the new renaissance, standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company, uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way, Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whitbeer, the neighborhood original. Brought to you by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. Visit them at HarlemBeerNC.com. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. Okay. Here we go flowing on and on. What's this we doing so well? Coppin State baseball team playing very well right now. We're joined by the Eagles head coach, Sherman Reed, the Eagles, in a weekend series against Delaware State, the MEAC Northern Division is on the line as Sherman Reed joins us here. I'm from the press box to press row. Coach Reed, welcome to the program. Donald, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. I mean, I feel like I've arrived being on your show. <laughs> well, I don't know, Coach Reed. I mean, listen, you, you know, I've been keeping up now. I've been keeping up, kept up with you guys last year, and you've really done a good job with this program. So let's start there. 24 wins on the season, some really big wins also. Your thoughts on the season so far? It, uh, I tell you what, last last year was a breakthrough year for for these guys. The, the class of 2015, they came in here four years ago and believed in our presentation, believed in what we thought we could uh, do in terms of getting this program to prominence. And uh, they were juniors last year. Uh, we set the school record for wins, uh, lost a tough conference uh, semifinal in, in extra innings, to a very good Bethune-Cookman uh, team. And, and this year they came back more focused, more determined, more determined than um, ever to um, finish what we left uh, they, there in Daytona Beach last year in the uh, conference championship. Just the mindset of this group. They, they, they know they're talented. 
Uh, and, you know, when adversity comes our way, they know that they're going to overcome it, and at the end they're going to be uh, – in the win column. So it's just been a good group, fun group to coach. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're honest, I mean, if you look at the, the program over the years, not not necessarily under your tutelage, but it's, it hasn't been, a you know, record-wise, hadn't been a very good program. So how have you been able to ch- kind of change that, change the culture, and then get to the point where you are now, gain 24 wins on the season the most in the history of the school? Uh, when, when I came here, uh, and I tell the guys, when I came here, Nine years ago, quite honestly, we were perennial losers for quite a while. We have had some of the toughest uh, stints uh, for baseball uh, in Coppin's uh, baseball history the last 20, 25, 30 years, quite honestly. Uh, being a, a local guy born and raised here in West Baltimore, uh, I thought that with a plan in place and with the patience of the administration that um, – being right here in Metropolitan Baltimore that, and having a marketing background, I'm a corporate guy, I've been in marketing and sales uh, in my prior career, I knew that there was enough here that you could market and go to, 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 to sell. The, the guys came in uh, very young, particularly the 2012 uh, group that to feel in 2013 as one of the youngest teams in America. They were all freshmen. Uh, we started seven freshmen, and the large majority of the pitching staff was freshmen as well. And we kind of took our lumps, but that was the, really the foundation. The kids said yes to our presentation over some schools that were far more established than Coppin State. But the key with young guys coming in out of high school, they want to play sooner, Donald, than later. And playing at the highest level, Division One, we are, uh, they, they, they took a chance believed in what we were saying, came here, and it was just the process of sticking with the plan. Quite honestly, we stayed away from uh, junior college transfers, and we really wanted to mold those young 17-, 18-year-old guys, talented guys, to come in here. And we, we felt very strongly that we could mold them to what the philosophies were of the, uh, of the coaching staff and those guys, when they stay, they tend to be all-conference guys. And the group that we have here now, that seniors, that's really, as I mentioned, it really started with the 2015 class. Uh, I, I'm more grateful than ever for those guys because often they had uh, chances to go places like West Virginia, Georgetown, and they chose us, and they got a, a division championship last year. Uh, and a lot of the uh, national publications feel very strongly that we're the top team on paper anyway in the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, uh, and that they all have us projected to go to the NCAA regional. And we got to just make that hold up by um, taking care of business on the field. Yeah, when you when I look back two weeks ago and the win over Townsend, which is your alma mater, I'm not sure if you had beaten yeah. Townsend before, but five to two victory. Mm-hmm. What did what did that mean um, to be the head coach at Coppin State and again be able to take the program from where it was to where it is now and beat your alma mater, who has a pretty good program? Yeah, I tell you what, uh, Towson was they went to the regionals. In fact, I think they were super regional bound. Yes, four years ago, and we've had some tough games there at Towson. Uh, I know when Coach Hunter uh, tend to uh, the one game I remember him not being it was this this game. But Coach Hunter always would show up for that game, and he would always encourage me and tell me, "Reed, you're doing a good job. Stick with it." There was always something uh, that that didn't quite 
uh, we didn't make that one play. We didn't execute that one play, and we always found ourselves on the uh, on the back end of a loss. Including, uh, I mean, we've had ties where we played to a tie with Towson. But I tell you what, there was a different feel when we took the field a couple weeks ago at Towson. We, quite honestly, thought we were going to come out with a victory, and the guys did. It was a well played game. I think the game. Only went a little over two and two hours, 10, 15 minutes. Well played, good defense, good pitching, and we were able to come away with that, a 5-2 win. And then the very next day, 24 hours later, we were able to go to a, a well-coached Mount St. Mary's team in, in Maryland and uh, pull off yet another back-to-back midweek uh, win. So it just kind of solidified the fact that um, – to, to the guys themselves that uh, really they can play really with anyone out there this year. Sherman Reed is the head baseball coach at Coppa State. He joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. T- tell us about Justin Banks. I mean, he's absolutely tearing up the MIAC. Wow, wow, wow. Justin Banks, Justin Banks. Justin Banks, many don't know, had a chance to, to, to sign professionally. If he really wanted to uh Forgo his last two years of eligibility. Uh, there were some opportunities for Justin last year coming out, out of uh, Napa Valley Community College to sign and play pro ball. Uh, but he elected that he knew that with the talent he possessed that he could increase his, his uh, draft stock by coming and playing Division One. And, um, and we were really fortunate that our, my recruiting coordinator, Matt Greeley, had a relationship with uh, Justin Banks, um, a junior college coach. And we were one of the first schools that uh, he reached out to when the draft came. And uh, Justin name wasn't called in the draft. We were the first team that that he called. And we got a deal done pretty quickly with Justin. Um, quite honestly, it was at the 11th hour. And we were so fortunate to have an opportunity to, be a, to bring a guy like Justin Banks in here. We called him a man among the boys, even though he's a very young 20-year-old, uh, the sky is so high uh, uh, for Justin Banks. And, and some of the things that he did this fall was legendary with some of the balls that we never found. He hit them so far and long. He's just a spectacular, spectacular hitter, disciplined at the plate, and more importantly, Donald, great kid, takes care of business in the classroom, um, I tell you what, there's a good chance we're going to lose this guy next month to the draft. But I tell you what, he's been a fantastic addition to this 2018 ball club. Yeah, no, he leads that that offense, which is really good, just one part of a, a really good offense. So pitching-wise, you know, talk to us a little bit about um, some of your pitchers. I'm looking more specifically at Devin Riviera uh, Uzana. Is that how you how you Ozuna. say his name? Yeah, yeah. Ozuna, the Ozuna kid. Yeah, 8-1 and one on the season. Uh, Devin is a kid, one of the few local kids, Donald, we have from this area. And it's funny, uh, a media outlet asked me a couple years ago, said, Coach, when I look at your roster, I am so impressed with where the kids come to play baseball at Coppin. Uh, right now we have kids from 16 different states and four countries. And the only explanation I can have for why we've been so successful and we've recognized the need to go outside of the immediate area is that we had been losing for so long, the local kids wouldn't give us a chance. Quite honestly, they wouldn't give us a chance. So we went further. The further we got out of the Baltimore metropolitan area, 
the kids tend to listen to our presentation and do their homework and make the decision for themselves. And Devin Rivera Ozuna is one of just three kids from the local area on the entire 30-man roster. And Devin came to us uh, after a spectacular high school career. We fought hard to, in recruiting that kid. We thought we were going to lose him to Virginia Commonwealth, but it worked out. He came to Coppin, and the kid has gotten better every year. And right now, I, I, I'm, I'm truthful when I say, and I really feel strongly about this, we have three number one starters. We could go with Rivera Ozuna. We could go with Aaron Ray. We can go with a Jamon Taylor. We can pull a name out of the hat and say this is our ace, and we wouldn't be far off from that at all. Uh, Ozuna has just been spectacular for us this year. Sherman Reed is the head baseball coach at Coppin State, joins us here on the program. Lastly, Coach Reed, and we appreciate the time. You, you've taken four of six from Dell State so far this year. It's the last uh, series of the season, one in which, you know, if, essentially you need to wrap up the North again. So what is it going to take to uh, defeat Delaware State this time around? It's going to be tough, Donald. I, I mean, we, we go into the last uh, three-game conference series with a one-game lead on Norfolk State. And uh, Delaware State going home uh, to Delaware State is going to be emotional, hostile for our kids. We have got to find a way to beat their number one guy. We're going to have to find a way to beat him. He's um, he's he's bound to be going in the draft in June. And I joked with uh, Coach Blanton the uh, three weeks ago when he dominated us and shut us down and said, "I'm so glad this junior will be gone from this conference uh, after this year because he's 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 bound to to be drafted after this junior year." We have got to find a way to beat Lawson. The only two losses we've had to them in six. And six outings has been to their number one guy loss. He's just a tough lefty, uh, knows what he's doing out there. Uh, we have got to find a way just to play one game at a time because if we if we find a way to get the win uh, on opening uh, night against their number one guy, we're going to put ourselves in position over those final two games this weekend to be in, in the driver's seat, which we are right now. Uh, we win, no one's going to catch us. Um, so uh, we got a one-game lead. It's going to be a very tough Tough game going up to uh, Dover, Delaware, uh, to try to find a way to win this series. But I think the guys are ready, and we we hope when we're returning on Sunday that we're going to be hosting uh, another uh, back-to-back division title uh, for this ball club. No question. It's a history-making season. Of course, the Eagles looking for more as they're going to face uh, Delaware State in a weekend series. Again, the head baseball coach at Coppin State is Sherman Reedy. joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Coach Reed, we appreciate the time. Continued success to you and the Eagles. Donald, my pleasure, man. I appreciate the opportunity. And you take care. Hope to see you on the baseball field somewhere around real soon. Lindsey Hunter after this small pause for the cause. This is from the press box to press row. On the line, we're joined by a two-time NBA champion here on from the press box to press row. Also played 17 years in the NBA on Tuesday, was introduced as the new head men's basketball coach at Mississippi Valley State. Of course, was a legendary player at Jackson State. He's Lindsey Hunter. Joins us here on from the press box to press row. Coach Hunter, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Of course, the last time we talked with you, you had just become the interim 
uh, head coach with the Phoenix Suns. Well, what may you know? If you look at the three big uh, HBCUs in in Mississippi, this is your this will be you'll be at the third school because you were you started at Alcorn State. Of course, you played ahead a great mm-hmm. career at Jackson State. Why was this the right job for you here at Missis or at Mississippi Valley State? Well, I, I think when you look at the timing and, and kind of the way things happen, um, and, and me, you know, uh, wanting to to have my own program and, and start my own program and build it, it's just it just came around at the at the perfect time for me. And, and I think, uh, you know, um, at the stage uh, that Valley is at right now and, and where I'm at in my career, wanting to, you know, build something special and do something special at an HBCU is just the right time and, and the right. Uh, um, place for me right now you know and being back home you know made the, the decision a little easier yeah no question right back home so how did the process come about did you inquire about the position did they come to you uh it, it was kind of a mutual thing I, I i knew some people um that were affiliated with the program and they reached out to me and you know and i i reached back out and said yeah i'm very interested and we, we both had a mutual interest and we took it from there, and, uh, you know, here we are, you know, me starting uh, to try to build something uh, that I think can be special. What are some of the things, I know you're just new to the job, but some of the things you've been able to assess? Because if you look at it, I mean, if you look within the last 10 or 11 years, the program has gone to the NCAA tournament twice as won two SWAC tournament championships. So where's the program right now? What are some of the pieces you think – uh, where the program is missing that can enable it to get back to competing for SWAC championships? Well, you know, you know any program you start in, as a coach, you want the program to kind of emulate your style of play and how you foresee, uh, you know, uh, your team looking. And that's what we're doing now. Uh, we're, probably, we're just recreating an identity, um, you know, uh, of how we want to play, you know, the types of players that we want to bring in. Um, the type of student athletes we want to bring in, and, and that's the most important thing. You know, we want to create a culture that's um, high character. You know, kids that really want to uh, push forward toward graduating, and kids that want to be really, really good basketball players. When you think about the SWAC, certainly when you played, it was you know high scoring. You had some really good teams uh, back during that time, and of course now you look at the Texas Southerns of the world, the Prairie View A and M's of the world, who of course uh, is the reigning SWAC tournament champion. Um, your thoughts? How much have you been able to follow SWAC basketball in the last four or five years or so? Well, I've always followed SWAC basketball, you know, uh, since I left school. Um, you know, because I, I held it dear, near and dear to my heart always because it gave me an opportunity to, to be successful and, and to have the great career I had. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to be really close with Coach Mike Davis, who, you know, was, was monumental in building that program down at Texas Southern. So I've had a lot of conversation with him. Um, I've got to sit with him throughout this uh, last past season and just watch, you know, how he's building his program at the University of Detroit. Um, you know, he's had me in every meeting, every single activity that he, he does. He just pulled me, pulls me along with him. So I've been able to learn from someone like him who's just a great, great coach who often doesn't get the credit he deserves. Um, but, but that was a great thing for me and fortunate thing for me to be able to sit under his tutelage for an entire year um, while I was, you know, pursuing what I wanted to do. Um, and and that, I think I have an advantage in that aspect of it, knowing what to expect, being able to, you know, I played in the swag, so I know what to expect from that aspect. And, and you know, I just feel like it's the right time, and, and um, I have a lot of things that are helping me, you know, push through being successful. 
That's the voice of Lindsey Hunter. He's the new head men's basketball coach at Mississippi Valley State. He joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. As I mentioned, Coach Hunter, the last time we had you on the show, you were the uh, interim head coach uh, of the Phoenix Suns. Do you feel like you got a fair shake there in Phoenix after the season was over? I mean, you had a lot of challenges there in Phoenix. Yeah, you know, as a coach, you know, whenever you're, you're let go from something, you always have things that you can look at and say, well, I don't think that was right or that. You know, I don't look back and regret anything. They made the decisions that they had to make to move on. Um, and and I've done, you know, also. Um, so I, I don't look back and, and, you know, I'm not a, a, a sour apple type of guy. I just move on and, and keep working and keep doing what I have to do to be successful. Um, yeah, it, it was great experience for me. It taught me a lot and prepared me, I think, for, for doing what I'm doing now. Um, you know, being in the NBA, you have a lot of responsibilities. You have a lot of things that you have to account for, and, and as well as college. It's just a little different, you know. Um, but I, 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 I thank God that I got to do those things because I know it just prepared me for this. Yeah. Well, what was the time like, and then immediately after the Suns, you were in Golden State. What was that time like as an assistant in Golden State? It was great for me because Coach Mark Jackson really allows his assistants to do work and to grow. Um you know, handling game plans, being very vocal in practices. Um, when it was your game plan, you know, you basically ran the practice. And, and you know, and, and so that really allowed me a hands-on uh, experience of, of coaching some really, really great guys. And, 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 and that's the big thing about coaching, man. You want to work with somebody that really allows you to grow. I, I think being with Coach Jackson, he allowed me to grow. When I was in Phoenix uh, under Lance Blinks, he did the same. He really allowed me to, to, to grow uh, as a coach. Um, and I think here with, with Miss Forty and President Breed, I'll be able to do the same thing. Lindsey Hunter again, the new head men's basketball coach at Mississippi Valley State, joins us here on the program. You know, I think the last time we had you on, I don't think I asked you this question, but again, you started your career at Alcorn State. What ultimately led you to transfer from Alcorn State to Jackson State? Well, as a freshman, I was recruited, you know, by Dave Whitney, the great uh, wizard, uh, Coach Dave Whitney, a uh, legendary coach, uh, and and we had a really, really great connection. You know, I started as a freshman, and he really rarely started freshman. Um, so I feel honored that, that he felt that I was good enough to, to be a starter. And, um, you know, he was let go after that, after my freshman year. And, and you know, it was really, it was hard on me uh, because, you know, I had a really great connection with him and, um, after that, you know, I sat down and my parents and I, we talked and had a really heart-to-heart talk with him. And, you know, we felt like, you know, if he wasn't going to be there, then I probably needed to move on. And, um, you know, that's when I transferred to Jackson State and I was just going to school and I happened to meet Coach Andy Spoglin, who was another great coach that helped me grow. And, and uh, you know, and, I, and that's why I believe things happen for a reason. You know, I, there was a reason I was at Jackson State just sitting out and, um you know, Coach Stockland took the job that year, and, and the next year, you know, I, I was on that team and, and just grew from there. We built a special uh, special team there. Yeah, what were those times in the SWAC, and more specifically at Jackson State, like you were definitely a superstar at Jackson State and in the SWAC? Oh, it was great for me, man. I, I, I had the time of my life in college, and, and I tell uh, – I'll tell anybody that that I wouldn't change that experience for anything in the world. I just remember when we were um, we played in Hawaii my senior year, and um, I think Kansas was there, uh, Nebraska, and, and uh, Michigan with the Fab Five, and 
um, I made the all-tournament team, you know, right alongside those guys, and they were asking me, man, you know, um, would you have wanted to play with the Fab Five? And, I, and my answer was, of course, had they came to Jackson State, I would have loved to play with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great, that, no, beautiful. That, that is an awesome answer. So then ultimately a first-round pick um, in Detroit and, and was very successful in the league. You won two championships as I mentioned, what about, what did that second championship mean to you? Because you had had a nice stint in Detroit, bounced around a little bit, of course, ultimately along the way, won a championship with the Lakers in 02, but then to come back to Detroit and win it in 04 must have been really special for you. Very special because that's the, you know, that's the first place I played at, and that, that's where I kind of grew up uh, here, here in Detroit. And, and for us to win a championship playing against a team like the Lakers, who were stacked at the time, um, and I don't think anybody in the country gave us a, a prayer to win a game, you know, <laughs> and, and, and for us to come out and play the way we played and to have the confidence that we had in, in our team, um, man, it, it, it was the best feeling in the world. It was like, you know, uh, you, you've reached the ultimate pinnacle of your career. You won a, a, a championship uh, in the, the, the toughest, the most talented league in the world. Yeah, and then playing, you know, playing alongside of and, and with Joe Dumars, what was that like? It was great for me. You know, I got to play again, play uh, aside, uh, beside two great Hall of Fame guards. That was uh, Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, um, you know, and just met many, many great players along the way. And, and I just learned so much from those guys. And, and those are the, the lessons that I continue to teach to, you know, the young guys that, that uh, have come after me and, and some of the guys that I've got to touch. You know, I, I've been blessed enough, man, to, to work with Derrick Rose, uh, to work with Steph Curry, uh, uh, Clay Thompson, you know, and, and you never forget those things. And those guys, you know, who still reach out to me for advice and things like that. So you know that, you know, it makes you feel good when you can touch people's lives and, and, and just, you know, uh, add to their greatness already. Last two thoughts. How's recruiting coming along? Pretty good, man. I, I actually enjoy re- recruiting. Um, um, you know, I've been in. Uh, I helped out uh, a couple of the coaches that I mentor in high school. Um, so I've been in the grassroots uh, for a while and, and understand how the whole thing goes. Um, so I, I really enjoy it. I really like getting to know kids and uh, really try to get them to understand. You know, in, in my situation that. Hey man, we may not be the biggest school in the world, and you know we may not have all the bells and whistles, but I guarantee you, if you come here and work, you know as hard as you can, and if you have the ability to be seen by by you know uh, next level type people, I have those relationships. Like I can get you, I can get you, you know, in some places that uh, a lot of people can't. Um, so so you know those are the type of things that I do. The type of you know that's my sales pitch. Um, and, and and it's been great, man. I've met a lot of young kids that are, are great young men, and, and, and that's how we want to build our program. And then last thought, uh, do you feel like you, and I'm not trying to give anything away, but do you feel like you have perhaps, you mentioned Steph Curry, so do you feel like maybe you have the next uh, in your recruiting trails, the next Lindsey Hunter or the next Steph Curry? In other words, a guy that's a first-round draft pick that went to a smaller school. Well, and that's, you know, and a lot of kids, I have to show them things like that. You know, when you look throughout the league and you look at some of the top guards, uh, you know, you look at Damian Lillard. He came from Weaver State. You look at Steph Curry, you know, from Davidson. 
Um, there are a number of guards that, you know, they didn't play in Power Five conferences. Um, but, but, you know, C.J. McCallum, you know, those are the type of kids that people miss on a lot, but those are kids that can play at the highest level and, and be achieve greatness at the highest level. Played 17 years in the NBA, won two championships along the way. Former first-round draft pick out of Jackson State by the Detroit Pistons. He is Lindsey Hunter, the new head men's basketball coach at Mississippi Valley State. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row, Coach Hunter. We appreciate the time. We look forward to talking you, uh, with you uh, during the course of next season. I look forward to it, and I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. Appreciate it, Coach Hunter. Mike Wallace of Grind City Media is up next. The radio program that's talking sports from New York City to Cali and globally on the World Wide Web. From the Press Box to Press Row continues after this. Box to Row.com is the website for all of your HBCU sports needs. From the game of the week feature to interviews to the latest news in the world of HBCU sports. Box to Row.com has you covered. Missed a week of From the Press Box to Press Row? Box to Row.com has all the archive shows. Don't forget to check out the All-American teams and weekly media coaches polls. From the Press Box to Press Row. And Box to Row.com. Your HBCU sports leader. It's Donald Ware from the Press Box to Press Row. All right, let's talk some NBA playoffs here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Mike Wallace, Senior Editor of Grind City Media, joins us on the program. What's going on, Mike? Hey, everything, man. It's the, uh, the playoffs. A lot at stake, a lot of uh, big-time drama, a lot of games going on. So, you know, we're just right in the middle of it. And then right after that, you got the, the NBA draft lottery coming up. So I'm right in the thick of it, man, loving every minute of it. Yeah, man, you definitely are. The so the 76ers and, and Raptors the 76ers lead this thing two games to one of course game four going to be in Philly on Sunday what it was it was basically domination by Philly a very chippy game as a matter of fact but domination by by Philly your thoughts in terms of not only game three but also in the series with Philadelphia leading this thing two games to one man I looked at it after that game one and and how easily the Raptors. Uh, destroy Philly in that first game, and I thought that this this series was going to be quick. You know, I really didn't think Philly would be able to match up with them. Um, you know, I thought Joel at the time was dragging himself physically into that series, and I didn't think maturity from a maturity standpoint they would be able to match. Uh, you know what, what Toronto was doing, and, and lo and behold, they come back with back to back blowout victories to really really take charge of this series. And um, you know, you got to credit Philly for doing what they've done. Jimmy Butler was the hero in game two. Joel Embiid is as spry as I've seen him, you know, ever uh, in game three, doing windmill dunks to punctuate the wins and, you know, uh, pure wedding for the fans. So it's it's good to see. And, and overall, I mean, I'm glad to see Philly as a fan base uh, get to embrace this team again and really feel like they have a chance to uh, to advance. But, you know, I still think Toronto has another counter left in them. Um, when you got Kawhi and, and those guys, I think, uh, he's not going to let him down, but he certainly needs some help and more consistency from Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry, Marcus Saul, and Pascal Siakam. Those guys in that bench unit need to step up and match what Philadelphia is doing from an energy standpoint. 
Yeah, I mean Kawhi has been has been spectacular, man. I mean he is, re- you know, because he was basically out last season. You forget how really, dom- at least I did a little bit, how dominant a player he is, and he's showing that in the playoffs. But to, you mentioned a name that seems to disappear in the playoffs every year for Toronto, and that's Kyle Lowry. Who? What's yeah. what's what's up with him? I like what's the deal? Why does he tend to disappear in the playoffs? I mean, he's such a, a talented player. Um, you know, but it, it, every single year, it's it's it, you see the same thing. It's almost like you can count on it like clockwork. Um, you know, some other guys around the league get uh, they get better in the playoffs, and so you've heard of guys like the playoff Rondos from back in the day, uh, the playoff Damian Lillard, the playoff Dame, and, and and those guys elevate their games uh, to a different level once once the uh, the bigger games get here. Kyle Lowry becomes more erratic, um, unfortunately. And, and I think a lot of people in Toronto are growing tired of that act. Yes, they did re-up and, and, and sign him to another contract a few years ago. But at the end of the day, as your point guard, as the guy that needs to control the tempo, um, he has to be more solid for that team. He's too far into his career, the longest-tenured Raptor, uh, to continue to go through these things. And, and if he's not right, they're not going to win. Kyle, uh, Kyle Lowry can only do – I mean, I'm sorry, Kawhi Leonard can only do so much to carry this team. And you're right, D. He's been so remarkable. I've tweeted this out before, man. I mean, I haven't seen this kind of footwork, this kind of finish, and the kind of movements and mannerisms uh, on the NBA court since Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant were doing it. That's the kind of offensive player that Kawhi Leonard has become. But, again, it's all about Kyle Lowry. He has to take the onus on himself to get himself back into this series. He's a Philadelphia native. So he shouldn't look for too much more incentive other than that uh, to, to play his best basketball. And we'll see if he can get there. Getting back to something you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about Philly, why in these last couple of games, what has led Philly to be so dominant in these last two games? And they, you know, if you think about this, man, they're, I mean, they and, and, and game four is in Philly on Sunday. Like, they could run away with, just like you thought Toronto may run away with this thing after game one, Philly could now run away with this thing. They could. They could. And that goes back to the uh, how they come out uh, in game four is going to really be a test of their maturity and whether they're ready to win a championship. If they're a championship caliber team, they come out in game four, take that game and put a stranglehold on this series and take a 3-1 lead. Then if Philly can do that and play in dominant fashion the way they did in, in games two and three, then it's like, okay, these guys are ready. You know, one of the things that Philly didn't have and, and Brett Brown and, and a lot of people that cover that team, uh, both locally and nationally, continue to say is that, they don't have the luxury that some of the other teams have had. I mean, Kawhi Leonard has been in Toronto all season long. Um, you know, you look over in the West, obviously Golden State has been together for a few years now. Houston has been together for a few years now. Um, you know, you just look up and down. Denver's had a nice couple years run with the unit that they have right now together. And obviously Portland uh, with that backcourt, uh, Dame Lillard and C.J. McCollum, they've been together for years and years. But Philly has just constructed this thing. You know, Tobias Harris came over midseason in a trade. Jimmy Butler came over uh, earlier in the season in a trade, and now they're trying to put it all together. So now that they, it looks like they're hitting their stride, and I think that's going to be the difference with those guys when it comes to uh, taking advantage of this opportunity they have to really, really put a stranglehold and push Toronto in a corner on Sunday. Mike Wallace, senior editor of Grind City Media. Check him out at grindcitymedia.com. He joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row as we talk 
NBA playoffs and other stuff. So I want to, I mean, I know we're so far removed from game one of the Rockets and Warriors. Of course, game three going to take place in Houston on Saturday. But I want to get your thoughts on the whole deal with the Rockets complaining about the fouls and being able to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when did we even get to this rule where you have to allow a guy to, to land? I mean, I get all of that. But it seems like they really blew it out of proportion, basically because they knew, listen, if they don't get to the foul line and get some other things going, I mean, you're talking about this is a Warriors team that, you know, it seems like they're unstoppable. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think think they took uh, Houston's best blow. And obviously Houston will get two games at home to try to get themselves back into this series. But but to go back to your original question, I mean, um, the emphasis on that rule in terms of the landing zone, and not coming down on guys' foot when it comes to that. that. That really started, you mentioned Kawhi Leonard. That's what, you know, being out last year and some of the injuries that he's had. You remember two years ago, yeah. San Antonio uh, was playing the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Golden State Warriors, and Kawhi came down, um, and, and Zaza Pachulia was right up underneath Kawhi in that corner yep. as he was coming down from taking a corner three, and he blew out his ankle, and he was done for the rest of that series. And at a time when San Antonio was just coming off of their championships and were considered a serious threat to Golden State at that time, remember they were the only team that had their way with Golden State during the regular season of that of that year. And I believe that was the year Golden State, I believe, won 73 games or was either right around that time. Um, so they were a viable threat until Kawhi left that series. And then Golden State went on and, and did their thing. So that rule goes back to that series. And now you're seeing it. But what you're, what you're also seeing from these two teams are both offensively gifted players manipulating the rules. Every time they jump up to take a shot, somebody's falling down, acting like they're kicking out their leg and doing this other thing. So now the officiating has become such a, a, a hot topic uh, in that series. But at the end of the day, these guys got to get back to playing basketball. Game two was ugly because Steph Curry went out uh, with the hand injury and came back. James Harden went out with the eye injury and came back. Houston's going to have to play so much better because Golden State's firepower with Kevin Durant being playing like he's on a mission is going to be almost insurmountable to overcome. I think Golden State, you know, punched Houston in the mouth, and I think, frankly, they can get one of two in Houston to come back to Golden State with a chance to close it out in game five. I think that's how that's, that's going to play out in the next couple games. Yeah, do you do you believe – I mean, how do you see game three playing out? But do you think Houston – obviously they have a chance, but do you think they can win – Game three on Saturday. They have to. I mean, it's like if, if Houston is worth anything that they've said they are, they've called out Golden State all year long. They said they want to get back to this. And the thing that, they, they, that they're missing, though, they're not as defensively sound as they were last year when they were up 3-2 on Golden State. You know, they lost Trevor Ariza. They lost uh, Luke Richard Bumate, Richard, you know, Buma, uh, Mabute. So they, they lost a couple of their defensive uh, wing players uh, you know, to, to sort of slow some of those guys down. It's one of those situations where, you know, this uh, Houston team is trying to outscore Golden State, and you can't outshoot Golden State. You can't outscore them. So how are you going to beat them if you're trying to beat them at the game that they specialize in? And I think that's what Houston is going to figure out, uh, and they're going to come back down to reality pretty quickly. I hope they win game three because I want to see this series extended, but I'm not guaranteeing a win because I think Golden State – uh, is ready to really, really put a stranglehold on these uh, on these nemesis uh, rockets that have come up against them. Lastly, Mike, and we appreciate the time. Uh, sort of switching gears, man. John Singleton. So you know, you know, obviously he passed away 
um, you know, Boys in the Hood, it's such a, a groundbreaking movie, Oscar nominated movie. Y- your thoughts yeah. on John Singleton, his career, and your favorite movie of his? Man, it's 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 shocking. It's surreal. You know, obviously we've known that he's had some health issues, and you know he had been, uh, uh, you know, basically fighting for his life over those last few days there, uh, a week or so. And you know, what, what what hit to me is that you know the brother was only 51 years old, man, so young. You know, and, and that's not much older than where I am right now. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not too far from that. You know, and and it's 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 a reminder that you know, hey, man, if you, you know, all men need to get checked out, and, and but especially black men. Uh, black men have a higher rate of uh, hypertension. And I'm not speaking out of turn here because this is the things that John Singleton's foundation and his family members wanted to go out and remind black men to do is uh, stay on top of your health, man. Go get these regular checkups. You know, that's the last thing a lot of us want to do. We don't want to make time to go see a doctor because it's always bad news or some more pills you got to take or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, this is about healthy living. And uh, if his legacy means anything, that's what it means in his death, and it's unfortunate that he we we lost him so young. And, and my favorite movie of his, obviously, um, you know, you got to start with Boys in the Hood because I said this before. I felt like in my in my mom and, and, and my mom and I have talked about this. You know, our Boys in the Hood, Donald, you and I came through the same way, same uh, age for the for the most part. That Boys in the Hood was our Cooley High mm-hmm. for our parents' generation. You know, what I'm saying Cooley High to them was our Boys in the Hood. And and I think that that movie was was so much about coming of age uh, for young men um, in inner cities across this country, and we all related to it. Um, but I also loved 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 Higher Learning yeah. and Rosewood because of what those two stood for. So Higher Learning was an underrated John Singleton movie that I really really loved. Uh, but this man put so many guys on the map, you know, from Cuba Gooden Jr. to you know um, you know Regina King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean all of these people that that have come out. Um, you know, Omar Epps, I mean, a lot of the Ice Cube. I can go on and on and on. That was a talented brother. He was gone far too soon. Yep. Check him out at grindcitymedia.com. Also follow him on Twitter at MyMikeCheck. He is Mike Wallace. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Mike, we appreciate the perspective, man. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks or so. All right. Anytime, man. Thanks a lot, man, for having me. I'm out. Thanks to Mike Wallace, Sherman Reed. Lindsey Hunter for joining us on today's program. For more information on From the Press Box to Press Row, log on to our website at BoxToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. From the Press Box to Press Row is presented by DW Communications. School, cause I was a high school grad. Got to get a job, cause I was a high school dad.